You're listening to CRST, the podcast from Bryn Mawr Communications. Hello, and welcome to this episode of International Perspectives on Dry Eye Disease. I'm your host, Dr. Laura Perryman. In this series, clinicians from around the world are going to comment on some of the under-discussed aspects of dry eye disease that are sometimes glossed over. In this episode, we will be reviewing which underlying systemic conditions clinicians should consider when evaluating a patient during a dry eye consultation. In future episodes, we'll review which underlying ocular conditions are most relevant to dry eye, and we'll discuss the patient journey and experience. But now let's dive into our first episode. I'm so pleased to have my guest here today. First, I'd like to introduce you to Dr. Miele Brujic. He is a partner of a four-location practice in Northwest Ohio called the Premier Vision Group, and that's in Bowling Green, Ohio, where he practices. Welcome, Mila. Hey, Laura. Thank you for having me on. Awesome. It's great to have you here. And then second, I would love to introduce Dr. Victor Perez. He is professor of ophthalmology and director of the Steve Foster Center for Ocular Immunology at Duke Eye Center in Durham, North Carolina. Welcome, Victor. Hey, Laura. Great seeing you, Millie. Thank you. Good to share the podium with you and uh, looking forward for a healthy discussion. Excellent. Excellent. So, as seasoned dry eye doctors, and you know, we're, we're all dry eye nerds, right? We love doing this. We see these patients day in and day out. It's not uncommon to be the first to diagnose systemic underlying conditions um, because they can contribute to the dry eye situation. Um, and have you encountered that frequently in your practice where you're the first to figure out the underlying systemic disorder? I mean, in my practice, I do because, you know, it's a bit more of a specialized practice, but that's what we see. We see patients with inflammatory diseases of the eye and the eye and the dry eye is not any different. It's part of that umbrella. So I see a lot of patients that, you know, have some form of inflammation and uh, looking into that, you have to do examine the patient, get a good history and you're sure you'll find some systemic disease. I think it's interesting too, Victor, that um, sometimes the symptoms that they present with locally will actually be manifestations of things that are happening systemically as well too. Um, Laura, you, you are aware of this, but in undergrad, I was a biology major with a biochemistry minor and I spent a lot of time in immunology and it's, it's, it's interesting to see how everything's intertwined. And as much as we understand and know about healthcare, we realize that there's just as much that we, we don't know and we're learning on a daily basis. But it's also interesting too, um, with respect to the medications that individuals are taking for some of these systemic conditions. I'll give you a perfect example of what I mean, Laura. And this is something that I think all of our colleagues need to just be very aware of. We have a patient who has non-inflammatory dry eye disease. Every time, should say, a non-elevated levels of MMP9 dry eye disease. I see her every six months for new intracanalicular punctal plugs. She does remarkably well with them. Every single time I test Inflamadry, she's negative on that test. And the last time she said it didn't work quite as well when, when we asked her more about the symptoms, we realized she was taking a decongestant nasal spray. So it, it's something that totally threw it off and it, it misperceived her perception of, of what the treatment actually was. So I think there's systemic conditions and I also think the treatments that these individuals are going under can kind of derail our efforts as well too. Yeah, you know, I, when I give this talk, I have, this slide that I present an iceberg and the tip of the iceberg is the eye. 
And below the things that can present infection, systemic diseases, autoimmune diseases, and the ocular surface is in front of us. So we can tell that something is wrong and, and pursue uh, further investigation. And I can tell you off the bat, you know, patients that may have some form of autoimmune disease, and by that I mean the common ones, rheumatoid arthritis, inflammatory bowel disease, you know, non-systemic diseases, look for ocular surface inflammation in dry eye because most of them will have that. I agree. And so many times when we're, when we're doing that examination, looking at the tip of the iceberg, as Victor so astutely calls it, if you just take just a little step back, you'll start to notice dermatologic features that can tip you off to certain systemic disorders. Um, I never used to really think of rosacea as a systemic disorder, but turns out it is. There's a gut dysbiosis, there's uh, association with cardiovascular disease, with diabetes, with hypertriglyceridemia, all kinds of systemic components uh, to their uh, to their whole body, and it shows up in our clinic as ocular surface disease. What other dermatologic conditions do you run into that uh, that have a systemic component to ocular surface disease when you're examining a patient? You know, one, one of the most common that I see and very important to recognize, you know, are patients that have a little bit of cicatrizing changes in the surface too. And you have to think of immunobulous diseases, especially elderly patients, patients with pemphigoid, um, you know, or uh, lichen planus. I mean, they fall within that category and, and they need to be diagnosed and treated accordingly. And the treatment's very different, right? I Absolutely. Like it's a systemic therapy. <laughs> You know, the other disease that I think it's important, and, you know, that's my, one of my main messages, patients that receive a bone marrow transplant for a leukemia or a genetic disorder, 60% of those patients will suffer what is called graft-versus-host disease. And it's the donor cells that affect different tissues, the skin, the bowel, and the ocular surface, 60% will develop dry eye. So if you have a patient that receives a bone marrow transplant, you really have to keen into looking at the ocular surface and evaluate ocular surface disease, which I think we'll cover in our next chapter. <laughs> or one of the things too that I think is so important for us to understand. So when we walk into the room with a patient, we're so locally focused on what's happening. I, I love I love your idea of pulling back just a little bit because we treat dermatitis all the time around the, the tissues of the skin. And how, how frequently do we ask about other areas that may have that same dermatitis response? And I think that is critical for us because oftentimes they will manifest these other symptomatic places. I think the tissues around the eyes are so sensitive that this is, we may be the first people that they're approaching on this journey to, um, to future diagnosis of this. So I think it's critical that we take a step back and ask about other spots or areas that have the same type of dermatitis response. You know, that's a great point. And I may include the mouth. Always look at the mucosa of the mouth, at the nose. You know, patients may have severe dry mouth and they don't realize and you see ulcerations. Or these patients with immunobulous diseases may have lesions in the mouth too. So uh, yeah, look everywhere. I think that's a very important point. And, you know, we vision clinicians are not used to that. Uh, and, you know, we really need to teach our students and keep mind to ourselves that, yeah, we need to look in other places beyond the eye. I love that. I call that the water bottle sign. Your dry patient that's constantly yeah. <laughs> working on their water 
bottle. It's like, oh, do you suffer dry mouth? Oh, yeah. Do you have problems with your teeth? Oh, yeah. I'm at the dentist all the time. It's like, okay, let's run some labs to look for systemic autoimmune conditions. But I think you can see a lot inside of a mouth just by looking inside of the mouth. Like structural things like a high arched palate can uh, suggest Marfan syndrome, and that has connective tissue um, considerations. Um, excess laxity of the skin, like Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, and all of these really subtle phenotypes that are out there with hyperflexibility and that can affect the lid and um, the mechanics of spreading that tear and ocular surface um, tear distribution. So yeah, the dermatology piece is very interesting and I, I love it that you're looking, looking inside the mouth for other signs of mischief, asking the questions, well, do you have any other itchy spots on your skin? Like screening for atopic dermatitis, screening for uh, rosacea, and it, Turns out getting that right could lead you down different treatment pathways, right? Laura, I, I would go as far as to say, I, I love the, the things and the topics that you're bringing up because a lot of times, just as important as it is to diagnose dry eye, it is important also rule out other things. And the last the, the, the elasticity of the lids is critical. I think one of the most overlooked conditions that we see in eye care are floppy eyelid syndrome patients. These patients right. in the office every time and they have this kind of plethora of treatments that they're undergoing when in actuality it it's it's a simple treatment keep these eyes covered in the evening whether it be some form of mask or um, whether it be some type of surgical intervention and their symptoms immediately go away but again we we have to be very cognizant of a lot of these things and, and because of the systemic association with sleep apnea we diagnose three to four of these patients a week um, or we confirm the diagnosis that they forgot to tell us about and that leads to a whole other plethora of things because if they do have sleep apnea they're usually using masks and that is another risk factor for dryness that's going to be difficult to treat with standard treatments. You, we got to take a step back and think about what's actually causing this problem. Rule out maybe dry eye and let's figure out the mechanical challenges that these individuals are having with just physical air blowing against their eyes in the evening. I love that. And the, uh, let's, the um, clinically, that, that triad of excess lid laxity, temporal eyelash ptosis, and that papillary conjunctivitis is your clue and it can be subtle and don't let somebody's BMI fool you. I've seen teeny tiny petite thin patients with sleep apnea that needed Tremo CPAP and some of those right. are somewhat reversible with good therapy. You know the other uh, other clue that we should look for diagnosis you know when you talk to the patient you know try to identify if there's any personality disorders. Personality disorders, depression, you know, uh, liability, you know, you know, ways that mood switch and also autism. And, and the reason I mentioned this because this patient, the dry eye might be, again, the tip of the iceberg uh, of a nutritional deficiency. I mean, these patients will tend to don't eat well, um, you know, that especially, you know, vitamin A, things like that. And they can, you know, present with an ocular surface a disease that really the treatment is you know, taking care of the psychiatric component of these patients uh, and nutritional uh, supplement. Oh, that's great. And so you have screening for history of gastric bypass surgery, right? Bingo. That would justify <laughs> efficiency as well. And all kinds of, like you said, neuropsychosocial um, com complications uh, from that, from that nutritional deficiency. And, uh, you know, the floppy eyelid is associated with poor sleep and that'll make you grumpy all day, every day. I don't blame them one <laughs> 
So <laughs> it's fun to watch uh, folks that you identify and get them the right treatment path, watch them you know, blossom and become a more energetic, happier, healthier version of themselves. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we'll look at how these factors might affect patient treatment. Thanks for sticking with us. Now that we're back from break, we'll do a little bit of a deeper dive on treatment options for patients with systemic diseases. Mila, I was interested in uh, your comments earlier about your allergic patient. And let's talk a little bit more about that, like the medication list and like what the treatment options are and how to really direct that. And what is the association between allergic conjunctivitis and rhinitis and ocular surface disease? Is there an immunologic bridge? Yeah, I'm glad you asked this, Laura, because and I, I'm a big person the philosophy of making sure we take the time to to adequately diagnose patients i think we're sometimes so transactional in eye care that we walk in we already think we know the answers i'll give you a perfect example of what i mean laura this happened to me about a decade ago and ever since then my technicians have asked this question different but i had a patient tell me her eyes were itching i prescribed olipatidine 0.7 to use once in the morning saw her back for a week follow-up her eyes were worse and when she showed me how her eyes were worse she was actually itching the skin on her lid. So that's one of these situations where, where you do the no charge office visit. Um, we're going to treat you now for exactly what the problem is and figure out why your lids are itchy, itchy whether there's something that you're exposing yourself to or it's something that's more broadly um, ranging. But, but there's really four different types of itching that I've found clinically that are highly specific for certain conditions. One is the skin itch. That's obviously some form of atopic dermatitis. There's the eyelid margin itch, and that's the blepharitis. There's the itching in the lower fornix or the mucus fishing syndrome. Then there's the knuckle rub in the corner of the eye, which is allergic conjunctivitis. Um, and then there's the fifth rubbing, where it's this kind of nonspecific diffuse rubbing that can be associated with a lot of the things that we deal with in our, in our patient base. I think it's, a, it's critically important to ask about any medications that patients are taking because if they don't report antihistamines that they're taking and we don't know about it, which oftentimes happens in eye care offices, we're completely missing the boat and going in different directions. So I think it's critical to accurately identify these individuals, Laura. I mean, I totally agree. This is very important. You know, a lot of these patients will have severe, you know, skin disorders and, and allergy. And they require, you know, there are different um, treatments that can help also the eye. First of all, you know, there's some specific ointments that you can use. The same thing they use in the skin can be used around the surface of the eye. More specifically, you know, protopic or prograph, you know, it's an anti-inflammatory ointment that helps significantly uh, the periocular and exon tissue. And then systemically, you know, these patients uh, can be treated with low-dose cyclosporin which helps systemically and eventually will help the eyes. You can work with other dermatologists to do this. And nowadays, you know, there's so many a new plethora of, of biologics and the bio, you know, antibodies that work really well, you know, in the lungs and the skin that can also be used to trick the eye. And, you know, that's very important to have identify that and refer accordingly. I agree. The, the dupilumab for atopic dermatitis is quality of life changing for these patients and 
the thing about uh, the, one of the consequences is if they, the atopic dermatitis patient who gets dupilumab or dupixin is the trade name, um, and they have a history of atopic keratoconjunctivitis, they can end up with a rip-roaring TH1, TH2 ocular surface disease called dupilumab-induced ocular surface disease, and it's an impressive presentation. And the temptation is to stop the drug, but you can get them through it with your steroids, your tacrolimus. We published on a case of uh, IPL helping the dupilumab-induced ocular surface disease. So I think the temptation is to back away, but really we should roll up our sleeves and double down and get them through that uh, dupilumab-induced ocular surface disease. Absolutely. You know, we have the target organ in front of us, so we can really be a little bit more aggressive in controlling these responses so the patients don't need to get off systemic medications that are happening systemically. And, and in addition, I can tell you, all the ocular structures that are affected with the skin, allergic diseases, my bovine gland dysfunction. I see these patients evolve in front of me in a you know, more advanced fashion. So uh, going to your point of using IPL, I think it's a very great idea to, to be aggressive looking at their meibomian glands. And I'm glad we're talking about common things like allergic keratoconjunctivitis and rhinitis because um, actually this work was done out of Duke with uh, Danny Sabin and uh, Nancy Reyes where they showed the there's an immunologic bridge between allergic conjunctivitis and MGD. And I think um, that's really interesting. And to my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, there's only a handful of things that block that bridge. First of all, you want to stop the inflow, but then you've got steroids, you have lefitograst, and you have IPL, and that's kind of it for stopping that poly-driven driver of to MGD. Yeah, and you know, we identify by doing analysis of the cells and the tears of these patients. A new population of inflammatory cells that we never thought about it. The neutrophil. I mean, we know they exist, but interesting, these are maybe the either orchestrators or the uh, effector cells that take care of the meibomian glands downhill. So Laura, um, what's interesting, I work with a lot of pre-optometry students in, in our office. So we're home to be Bowling Green State University. And because of that, they see a lot of and work with a lot of these patients and some of the more severe forms. And it's part of the reason why even this discussion, why I share with them, this is why we treat early, because we want to avoid the long-term downstream consequences that we're now talking about. When we can avoid this and treat early, we can avoid, I think, a lot of these long-term ramifications from a lot of these chronic inflammatory conditions. And I think protecting the eye is, is, is our duty in these patients, which is one of the reasons that I am of a strong philosophy that the sooner we can identify these patients with ocular surface disease and put them on appropriate paths to control some of this inflammation, the better the long-term clinical outcomes will be for them. I love that. And, um, Thanks for bringing that up, like the burden of disease and the duration of disease prior to diagnosis. And when we have some you know, pretty strong data around uh, the delay in diagnosis to Sjogren's, it's like over four years um, in the, the study of recalcitrant keratitis um, that uh, Melissa Toyos published recently, and treated very successfully with Akthar, their uh, duration of disease was around the same period of time of, of that, that long period of time. And so when you have that patient who's continuing to come in and needs help, what's your threshold for really rolling up your sleeves and shifting gears and offering something different or taking a fresh look at potential misdiagnoses? 
I mean, my threshold is very low because, you know, I see a lot of these patients. <laughs> yes, and, uh, I love the, the example of ACTAR, which is, you know, this cortisol stimulating in gel that is used systemically. And patients will tend to freak out a little bit at the beginning when you tell them you need to use systemic medications to help the ocular surface. But that's okay. You know, like you said, roll up your sleeve and walk them through what the plan is. And for me, as you know, trying to control your surface inflammation, you know, with not chronic use of steroids. And for that reason, just like dermatologists and traumatologists, we move quickly into what we call steroid sparing therapies. Now, having said that, you know, unfortunately, in contrast to other inflammatory diseases of the eye, like uveitis, scleritis, where the use of systemic steroid sparing therapy works incredibly, black and white. Dry eyes, not that much. And I think, to your point, I mean, that, you know, maybe we, if we find a children's patient early on, we still have some, uh, you know, lacrimal gland to work with. A lot of these patients come too late. And despite our efforts of immunomodulating their systemic um, immunological system, it doesn't work as clean as other inflammatory diseases of the eye. So, yes, low threshold, roll your, your leaves, leave and be aggressive with the therapy, identifying what these patients need. And Mila, I think that has, I'd love to hear your thoughts about implications for a primary eye care, like, you know, catching this earlier before the lacrimal gland is, is burned out from chronic inflammation. Like, how do we, what are some of the little subtle things that we need to be encouraging our colleagues to look for to catch this earlier in the disease states? Um, there are a few things that I would just recommend. One is, um, a lot of times we get inundated in the details on the technologies that we use to manage these things. But there are such easy screening tools that we can use just to catch these patients quickly. Literally pulling their upper and lower lid when they're sitting in the exam chair, just to, we, we can get a gross examination of the myboming glands. It's not as accurate as infrared. It's not as accurate as um, eyelid transillumination, but we can get a sense of where their glands are just by physically looking at them with the naked eye. I'm doing things like incorporating fluorescein which is an easy test and an easy thing to incorporate in the anterior segment um, examination. It's just easy to do and it tells you so much about the tear film in the ocular surface that's for most individuals um, absent in a standard white light assessment and really using the cobalt blue light and the rat and filter in place, which literally takes, takes a white light slit lamp examination and just makes the vis invisible, I should say, visible. And that's where you start to see these early modifications and changes. And when you simply ask these patients simple follow-up questions about eye discomfort, you immediately start to see they're either using things that are over the counter where they're trying to mask these symptoms or just simply not doing things that they want to be doing. I think systemically we have a massive role It's part of the reason why we recommend ocular nutrition. And I think there's a lot of benefits to a lot of the technologies that we have and a lot of the things that we know about as well too, in particular omega-3s. I know there's a little bit of controversy around the data coming out of the DREAM study, but I do think there's still a role for ocular nutrition for these individuals as well too, in particular early on in the condition. And then when your, your patient's progressing faster than you would think, or is not responding to easy treatment recommendations the way you would expect those would be like little 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 hints little whispers that maybe you need to look look deep look deeper right the most common question i get from dry patients today is why why am i developing this condition 
And I think that we can all identify the reason. We just might not have all the pieces to the puzzle. And as we see these individuals for follow-up, pieces to the puzzle start exposing themselves. And I think the more curious we stay about these individuals, the more we can play a greater part in, in the bigger healthcare picture of these individuals. So I, I do think that we're gonna look back in 10 years from now, we're gonna look back and say, yeah, we just used to think dry was kind of this local manifestation that some people developed. And I think we're gonna see that, oh yeah, these are associated with systemic conditions that we either didn't even know about, or we just didn't link to these individuals that, that we're gonna have direct connections to. And we're gonna look at this not as a local treatment, we're gonna look at this as a local treatment to a systemic manifestation which is awesome. All these tools are coming available to us so we can be targeted and specific and customized treatment plans for these patients. And, you know, as we all have mentioned here, you know, always, you know, if things, you need to turn off the state lamp and run the light in your room, talk and examine patients and you'll make better diagnosis. Well, this has been a very enriching discussion. I wish we could go on longer, and I think we should submit like a, a course to lecture on all this stuff. I think it would be really fun, and we could really deep dive onto all these topics and all the innovations that are coming about in the future. I can't wait. Dr. Brujic, Dr. Perez, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of International Perspectives on Dry Eye, and thank you to the listeners for joining us as well. Remember that we've got two more episodes in this mini-series coming your way, so be sure to subscribe to the podcast so that you can hear those episodes as they appear in your feed. For now, I'm Laura Perryman, and thank you for tuning in.